You've heard the film music of John Williams. Let's talk about what makes it so good. And hello, welcome to the Musician Toolkit, Episode 8. I'm your host, David Lane. It is great to be with you once again. And I'm really excited about today's episode because we are talking about maybe the most influential composer in terms of who inspired me to become a professional musician. And that is the film composer John Williams. If by some miracle you don't know who John Williams is and you're listening to a podcast about musicianship, we could be here quite a while while I just list off some of the numerous credits where you might have heard him before, from his television days where he did the music for Gilligan's Island and Lost in Space, among many others, um, to the numerous comedies that he did throughout the 60s. But um, really we're talking about his heyday is where he became really well known through movies such as Jaws, Superman, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and the Indiana Jones movies that followed, E.T., the extraterrestrial, of course, the Star Wars, all of the episode named the mainstream Star Wars, and um, then, of course, Harry Potter, uh, the first two films, and it just goes on and on. He has a storied collaboration with Steven Spielberg, and we're going to talk about some of the things that made him a great musician. It might help you understand uh, I think when you listen to this conversation that I'm going to have, it's kind of to my point, it's not just that John Williams decided he was going to be a great composer and studied all that he could about composing. Uh, he actually started his professional career in, uh, doing something else. And the experiences that he gained through exploring different sides of music and to listening to different kinds of music all went into what makes him the legendary composer that he is. And uh, the reason we're coming out with this this week is it's just a few days past his 91st birthday when this episode comes out. Before I tell you about our guest today and just a few other things, uh, I want to encourage you to let me know what is your favorite John Williams score. That's my question to you. And uh, you can, of course, send me a message uh, you can DM me or go to my go to my website davidlanemusic.com and uh, slash contact and leave a message. Or if you would like to for me to present that as as a portion of a future podcast episode, you don't mind leaving a voicemail. You can go to speakpipe.com slash musician toolkit. Leave me a voicemail. Uh, what is your favorite John Williams score, and maybe why? If there's a certain theme, if there's a certain scene in the uh, that that you enjoy, uh, and if you have more than one, you know, you can even give me a top two, top three, top five. What John Williams film score is your favorite? So please participate. Uh, go to speakpipe.com/musiciantoolkit. Also, if you check out in the show notes, as usual, just want to remind you if you have a studio of any kind where it involves scheduling and receiving payment. You really should check out the trial that you could get through Fonz, and you might find that you're, you've been missing out on having a more streamlined experience. My guest today is the Associate Professor Dr. Frank Lehman from Tufts University. His qualifications to speak with me about the music of John Williams are quite impressive. If you go to his website at franklayman.com and just kind of just look around, uh, you know, where he teaches at Tufts University in Massachusetts, you will see a lot of peer-reviewed uh, articles that he has had on film music, and namely John Williams, and I just, just wanted to list off just a very few. He has an, an internet publication called Guide to the Musical Themes of Indiana Jones. Uh, he has, um, there's a book chapter from Sounds Like Action, Music and Action, called John Williams Action Music in the 21st Century. In the Washington Post in 2019, he published an article called How John Williams' Star Wars Score Pulls Us to the Dark Side. And one really <laughs> impressive article that I'll mention, and, we'll, and I'll mention it again at the end, is he has an ongoing catalog and commentary on his website called The Themes of Star Wars Catalog and Commentary. 
it is super comprehensive. It's every melodic idea that appears in any movie, fully analyzed uh, with harmony and uh, and also where it occurs and how it's used. And if you are a Star Wars geek, like uh, or John Williams geek, or both, some combination of thereof, and you really want to get into the nitty gritty, go check it out. And as he mentions in this interview. He's about to add a whole lot more to it, and uh, it is just really an impressive tool. I would encourage you to go check that out through his website, again, which I'll put in the show notes. So the plan going into the interview was that we were going to talk about three very different scores, and the first two that we talk about may not be that popular. The first film we discuss is the 1995 film Sabrina, starring uh, Harrison Ford, and... uh, We'll talk about kind of the lighter, jazzier influence of John Williams. And then we also talk about Images, which is a very surreal score from 1972, Robert Altman film. And and those are probably not as popular as the third film that we were going to talk about, which is Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back. And uh, we will talk a little bit about that, but... That has been put off for another episode, and we have already scheduled when we're going to come back together to talk about that. It will happen this year, so it's a bit of a teaser for this episode, what we do talk about for The Empire Strikes Back. But we did get a little bit in, and but we're going to dissect it quite a bit more later, and I am really looking forward to that for, for reasons that will become clear, as I say, when we get to that point. But uh, before we talk about some of those scores, to use as an example... Uh, we're going to talk about John Williams and, you know, what are some of his influences? What are some of the techniques that he used and where did he, where did he gather the experience that led to those techniques? And, uh, I really enjoyed my talk with Frank Lehman. And so now I'm going to present it now. Here's my conversation with Dr. Frank Lehman. My pleasure today to be talking to Dr. Frank Lehman. And, uh, do you mind if I call you Frank? Please go ahead. Um, I'll give more information in the uh, intro about, you know, what you do, but uh, you're an associate professor at Tufts University. That's in Massachusetts, right? That's right. Right outside Boston. And uh, you're a music theorist and you're also a film musicologist. So uh, maybe just elaborate on that a bit. What is it that that you do? Yeah, sure. Well, thank you, first of all, for for having me on. This is uh, I think this will be fun. Music theorist and film musicologist. Well, a lot of these sort of uh, disciplinary boundaries are a little bit fuzzy to begin with, but the the film musicology thing, that is, I uh, am devoted to the academic study of music and cinema, you know, mm-hmm. um, whether it's in big mainstream movies or smaller independent or obscure films, you know, all of it is fascinating and worthy of attention. And, you know, people seem to be interested in it too, not just within the pretty narrow confines of the academy but students and the public so um then the music theory side of things that's more well analytical you know sort of dealing with the notes on the page trying to figure out musical structure and right um you know stylistic practices and where things come from where they're going musically speaking um it can get very technical you know pretty quickly uh, um which is fun for some people maybe a little bit intimidating for others but um, the combination of those two things, I, I think, m- maybe my preferred approach is, you know, to do a real um, in-depth investigation of of the actual music in in film because it it is so interesting and it's so uh, rewarding to study in depth. Right. Uh, well, it's great to have you on. This is, you know, this is a podcast about musicianship, and uh, and as I said when I started, well, sometimes I'm going to highlight certain musicians and look what it is. What is it about them that makes them tick? So, you know, I I don't think it would be a stretch to say that John Williams is, when you consider all the age groups, probably the most popular film composer mm-hmm. of all time. Um, I, I know you could probably make an argument for some generations to say Hans Zimmer, who's been a right. little bit more, you know, busy lately. But uh, John Williams, I mean, the, the way I kind of go about that is like, first of all, he connected with a television audience with like, you know, right. Gilligan's Island, Lost in Space. And then he became childhood favorites for anybody who had childhoods in the 70s or 80s with 
oh, let's just, I mean, I don't, I don't know if as a child you were watching Jaws, but <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah, Jaws, Star Wars, Superman. I mean, the original trilogy, Star Wars, which we're going to refer to that. Uh, E.T., you know, um, the Indiana Jones trilogy. So you had that all throughout the 70s and 80s. And then by by some miracle, like over 10 years later, he becomes a household name with a whole new generation of ch children through the Harry Potter first two films. Uh, you know, he's done several things since then. Of course, Jurassic Park is kind of in between. And, um, you know, so I guess one of the things I'd like for this podcast to, to go through is, one, why is he so popular? And, I mean, besides that he's had the fortune of getting very popular films. You know? <laughs> but also, what is it... I I I think he also besides being one of the most popular he's he's highly regarded as one of the greatest film composers to ever live. I mean there's very few you might in other eras you might say Corn Gold, Bernard Herrmann, um you know from a technical standpoint someone like Alex North, you know, you know there's Jerry Goldsmith, there's plenty of candidates for that. But you know, I'd like to look in what is the things that makes John Williams tick. So, um what do you know about his background, you know, like what, what are the things that he did before film music that might've had an influence? Well, uh, Williams has a very eclectic musical background, um, right. which is, is cannot be overstated how essential that was in sort of sculpting his musical personality and then the um, degree to which he can be like a musical chameleon in his film music um, and other musics. So, yeah, I think as a kid, he, uh, he, played piano and brass, I want to say trombone, um, and was involved in bands uh, in the, the L.A. scene back when he was in, in, in his teens in the 1940s. Um, and then uh, a, a series of steps took him into both the sort of arranging world and also classical comp composition, piano and jazz arranging and composition. Um, right. So long before he actually sort of started scoring pictures, he was a really adept arranger. Um, he arranged for Mahalia Jackson. He did um, arrangements and performed himself on various jazz records. Uh, was probably known first and foremost during his early years as a, as a really accomplished virtuoso jazz pianist. He also was uh, he studied at Juilliard um, classical piano, so he has that in his under his belt as well. Right. Um, it wasn't necessarily specifically as a composer that he he started his career. It was almost more of a performer slash recording artist. You know, right. He was involved in lots of different genres, uh, um, moving in and out of the the scenes in New York and L.A. He also had a, a stint in the Air Force when he was stationed in the Maritime Provinces in Canada. And he wrote, uh, I think, his first true film score for a documentary on Newfoundland, sort of tourism right. uh, <laughs> short film, which is view viewable on YouTube. And it's, you know, it's good. It's uh, cheesy and lo-fi uh, right. to go for uh, these days, but it's still kind of recognizably John Williams. So from the very start, he had uh, he had to sort of cultivate a mastery of a lot of different musical styles and idioms, jazz, gospel, classical, modern classical, yeah. um, and 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 so on. And this, I think, allowed him to get the his foot in the door once it came to writing, um, or orchestrating um, shows, uh, television shows early on in the 1950s, and then smaller pictures, and you know, gradually over the course of the 60s and especially the 70s. Um, those those projects just became more and more prominent, you know. And on occasion, he could bring uh, bring in his his a uh, more popular or jazz oriented background into the the style of the films that he's he's um, contributing to. A lot of those early sixty films are like yeah, uh, uh, sex comedies as a sort of travesties and and uh, right th things that uh, enabled Williams to go for a more comedic and often more popular or jazz inflected style. Um, 
Um, we don't see that quite as much in his current output, which is hard to right. believe I'm saying current output. He's 91 years old and right. uh, uh, he's um, still going strong. Um, but he became, a, I guess, I don't want to say pigeonholed because uh, right. the thing to celebrate, but he became associated with these big sweeping orchestral symphonic scores in, in the 1970s. But he really um, established himself before that point as being um, extremely competent when it comes to other musical styles which are no less challenging or involve no less amount of craft to to convincingly pull off right right so you know one of the things that john williams did is he had a connection with henry mancini early on mm -hmm. and i've always thought especially you know henry mancini is a lot more eclectic than people realize you know he's known mm -hmm. for the some of the blake edwards scores and, and of course the songs that he wrote for those films like moon mm -hmm. river um and the days of wines and wine and roses but you know he also um, Henry Mancini had a, um, he was kind of the guy to go to for your B science fiction movies in the fifties, like, uh, tarantula, what is it? Some tarantula. <laughs> creature from the black lagoon i'm actually that may not be his but he's he did films like that and uh and i was just wondering uh and of course john williams first became known to audiences as like the pianist who played you know for peter gunn exactly yeah and um just curious in your analysis of john williams music and other film music how much of an influence do you think henry mancini had on john williams early on well i think it's actually fairly strong i mean he uh mancini was as you say you know had a very large palette um stylistically um even if we know him best today for, as a composer of really immortal lyrical songs with a right. jazzy style to them um, yeah, and, and Williams, you know, of course, a new Mancini and played for him. Williams, there's a surprising number of classic movie soundtracks that involve Williams as the, the pianist, right? It's, it's not just right. Peter Dunn, but like the West Side Story um, film musical or To Kill a Mockingbird. That's him on the piano at the beginning. It's really wow. it's surprising. He he would have been you know an accomplished uh, contributor to Hollywood history if it were just for those piano solos that he was playing. Um, right. But well, as far as like the specifics go, um, you know, I think it's probably an aspect of the harmonic vocabulary, certain melodic gestures, um, this this tendency towards lyricism and singability that that you know certainly Mancini perfected. But there is a, there's a subtlety there too, um, right? That, that Williams definitely picks up on and i would i would also note people like alex north and and right you know the, the the sort of larger um move towards a film musical style in the 1950s and 60s that was a little bit less say late romantically um determined that you could bring in elements of jazz harmony and popular music That, that really strongly influenced Williams, I want to say. And, and I don't think it can be understated that besides his collaboration with the Mancini, he was actually friends, which is when, when you when you know about who I'm talking about, it's almost amazing to say that, but he was friends with Bernard Herrmann. You know? Right, right. <laughs> the famously irascible and hard to get along with man. Um, yeah, but uh, Bernard Herrmann and, and Williams were, I don't know how close they were, but yeah. uh, Herrmann certainly... Um, served as a mentor figure for Williams and, you know, gave him advice, right. not just on his film music, but also his concert music. And um, you can hear elements of Herman's music for sure. Affectionate references. And you, you can hear a like, direct quote in, in the original star Wars. It's like, there's a three note motif. <laughs> That's right. The, the psycho motif. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which is like a little in joke that yeah. is undeniable when you know it's there, even though it doesn't seem to be particularly motivated by anything happening right. on screen. 
Um, but yeah, oh, well, well it's within it's it's almost a eulogy, isn't it? Because it was less than a year since Bernard Herman had passed away. Yeah, um, and yeah. Um, yeah, and and Williams was the the composer for Hitchcock's subsequent uh, the, the the first movie. Um, I want to say post. Oh post, yeah, family. No, he he asked. I think he he got permission from her Herman. So right. her family plot. <laughs> yeah, he he didn't want to because they Herman and Hitchcock yeah. had their following falling out at that point. Williams didn't want to alienate his sort of um in in my opinion I I think Bernard Herrmann changed film music just about as much as anybody I mean Alex North was you know the first person to really get the jazz element into Mm -hmm. it but but you know if you compare to like the 40s and 50s scores of Bernard Bernard Herrmann to everybody else it just seems like he was just on his own planet Right, right. Um, and, uh, it, it, it really comes across, uh, and not just in those films where the the extraplanetary quality is uh, right. obvious, like the science fiction type of films. But you know, Herman's influence. I mean, it's hard. It's hard to to say just one thing as an right. orchestrator. It's you know tremendously distinctive and hard to actually hard to imitate successfully. Yeah. There, there are some classical composers that I when, when I listen to, I'm like, I'm you know, I I've never been able to ask John Williams if these are favorites, but I hear a lot of Samuel Barber's work. You know, like uh, Overture to the School of Scandal. Um, there's actually there's a he did one called like the Commando March. You know, which is uh, you know kind of a, a more obscure piece, but it's like the way that opens. It's got a little triplet figure in the brass. It sounds like it came right out of Star Wars. Of course, we know Prokofiev and Stravinsky, and uh, he's 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 mentioned. I I thought I heard him say one time. He has a collection of Beethoven string quartets by his bedside that he reads at night as kind of like his bedtime reading. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, Williams uh, has a frankly frightening uh, knowledge of the the classical art music canon. Um, right. Haydn is probably his 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 favorite single composer. He says. Oh that wow! Recently. I didn't know that. Um, yeah, with Barber, uh, for sure. The um, the violin concerto in particular seems to have been on his mind when writing the score to Born on the Fourth of July. All the sort of. Uh, mid-century American composers of, of instrumental symphonic music were well-known to Williams, um, Copeland and Harris. And... Well, out of respect for your time, I, uh, let, let's continue talking about his influences, but let's be a little bit more specific. Sure. So sure. Uh, we talked in advance and, uh, you know, there's so many films that we could choose to talk about, but uh, we thought three ones that are very different would be good. So um, the first one I thought we'd talk about is Sabrina. And, um, you know, you can maybe add to this list, but I thought um, as I was listening to this, this is the type of score that I would say you'd find throughout the 60s. I mean, just kind of look at his 60s filmography, and mm-hmm. I'm not even really going to name any of those. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, I should say not the Westerns, but, you know, the comedy. Oh, yeah, yeah. We should we should give uh, homage to the Westerns, which are really yes. excellent, too. <laughs> uh, but I thought Sabrina's very similar to, uh, you know, a couple of underrated scores from the 80s, uh, Stanley and Iris, mm-hmm. uh, The Accidental Tourist. And, um, and of course, I also noticed... Um, you know, I'd say later on, Catch Me If You Can is kind of in that vein. But I also, I was just listening to it again this morning. There's a lot of similarity to Home Alone. I, I think if you add more Celesta, mm-hmm. you know, more right. Tchaikovsky uh, homage, you're getting Home Alone with yeah. the sound you have in Sabrina. Right. It's an interesting kind of hybrid score. Um, it is a romantic comedy, and he dials up the romance with the sort of sentimental... Um, throwback kind of uh, uh, themes and, and orchestrations throughout. It's very piano heavy score, but it's also a comedy. It's fairly light throughout. And um, uh, he, he is sort of conjuring in some places a similar sound world to to Home Alone and, and some other lighter movies. It's a small scale score, although the orchestration at times is quite lush. Um, it's not like, it's not strictly speaking a chamber score, even if the right. most characteristic parts of it are 
you know, piano solos or piano plus you know, a small number of winds and string backing. Um, yeah, and and it and it does look forward in some ways to Catch Me If You Can, which is, I'd say, probably more thoroughly jazz oriented and right. really, well, improvisatory in some of its its uh, qualities. Sabrina is like a, a a comfort food of a score. It's very yeah. accessible and melodious and yeah. has a right outlook. Right. And it's and it's by a director. Uh, I believe is that Sidney Pollock. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you know, a director that, you know, is kind of more active, I think, you know, with John Williams in the 60s. But of course, this is the same director did Tootsie and, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, some other really light scores, which he, we, he'd worked with Dave Grusin, you know, with some mm-hmm. of those. So um yeah i was just listening uh, i was really struck by the main theme which is mostly piano and by the way do you happen to know did williams play that or did his session musician play it um i i doubt that he played played the piano on this particular score although he, mm-hmm. he has in the past um right. for sure and certainly is, is capable and there may well be a recording or two of him with the boston pops um right playing it alongside the orchestra because he's absolutely capable of it there is a clip somewhere on youtube it was from an evening at pops concert where he and gene Shallard are chatting and they're in a room with a grand piano and you see williams just sort of uh ca- casually playing you know some complicated little uh piano passage work from from the uh, sabrina theme as a, as though it were nothing and then then, then it um uh, uh segues into a big orchestral rendition of the theme Right. But I'm not I, I don't think so. Um but I, I could be wrong though. He he does okay. on occasion, you know, play, but usually he farms that stuff out to to right. the pros these days. Yes, <laughs> yes. I, I think uh, you know, and I haven't heard it yet, and it's because I haven't seen it, uh, the Fablemans. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I I I am one of those that when it when possible, I like to see the movie and experience the score in context before I before I hear it oh. separately, sometimes I can't, you know, but, I, but I'm, I'm holding the opposite. I, <laughs> yeah. I, I can't help myself. I, I, I probably yeah. know a hundred times more scores by just their pure musical content right. than the actual but, film. I, I will say you got to be careful about that. <laughs> yeah, just right. an example. It, if don't ever, you know, if you're out there, don't ever, if you've never seen the sixth sense, Mm-hmm. Don't go listen to the soundtrack, or if you do, don't look at the track names yeah. before you watch the film because there's a I big would, twist. I would the... argue that if if you're paying attention, you can even sort of put it together just by listening and having a, right. a vague <laughs> sense from what the music is telling you that something big is being revealed. Right. Yeah. No, you're you're absolutely right. I don't know that Sabrina is a kind of twist oriented no. film, but uh, you can tell from the 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 soundtrack that it has a happy, romantically satisfying ending, at least. Right. One one of the other films I know we're going to talk about is Images, and there there is a twist revealed in the tracks names yeah, of that. Uh, but you know, back to Sabrina. Uh, talking about the piano theme, you know, it's it's really kind of simply based on three notes, uh, like C down an octave, up a step. And I like how when you know this is, I think John Williams showing off classical and jazz sensitivity here. Mm-hmm. He's it's like uh, I I know it's a F major. I don't know if it's to a D minor or B flat. I don't remember, but it's it's a very simple within the context mm-hmm. of the scale. But for for the C C D, but then he start goes back to the F and then goes to an E seven, right? Which, right. You know, it's like a takes it to A minor for a moment. But it actually doesn't go to A minor, right? The um the ne- right. very next chord is a G minor seven. Yep. It's this exactly. sort of flexible harmonic language that, you know, it's completely um, drawn from his jazz expertise, right? There, yeah. even when the harmonic function is conventional, like when he does go to the the five chord, it's still you right. know loaded with extensions and um, you know uh, dissonant pitches, things that you wouldn't necessarily expect given the simplicity overall of the melody. Um, right. And and uh, you know the, the the accompaniment is also you know it's it's fairly elaborate you know um the it's not just the tune we're hearing counter lines almost implied by the arpeggiated um left hand and when right. the, the whole orchestra comes in then we get these lovely little response response call and response elements to the theme mm-hmm. 
and he does a crucial modulation in some of the versions of the Sabrina theme where it does become minor um, and more chromatic and modulatory and intricate mm-hmm. uh, in, in a way that kind of darkens the theme overall. Um, right. Enabling its return at the very end to sound even more bright and lush and and, uh, and comforting. Right. Yeah. It's. I it's... was. I was looking at just some of the other cues. You know. Just. Uh. And and I was just trying to get an idea of the orchestration it seems to be like mostly piano woodwind strings there are french horn i don't know how many but there are some french horns in it but you don't hear trumpets trombones you don't hear the rest um, of the brass may, maybe not... in just like the, the the end credits version you know where the theme is yeah. presented in its, its fullest skies um yeah. but it, it's also a multi-thematic score which distinguishes distinguishes it from some of the, the other um smaller scale williams pieces like accidental tourists which really is a monothematic score this one has right. I want to say three or four main recurring themes. So there's a Sabrina theme, which is that one with you know the big C drop uh, in the melody, and right. then there is a, um, a another tune called "In the Moonlight," which I think, mm-hmm. if anything, is a kind of more interesting harmonically. But what really strikes me about that that theme is that Sting um, performs on, on the soundtrack. Right. Uh, this really gorgeous sort of low key, very jazzy, um, mm-hmm. with a kind of improvised piano solo in the middle. Not Williams. Um, right. For all the things we've dreamed of in the extremely sophisticated in his harmonic vocabulary um mm-hmm. does things that you really don't expect and then there's another tune um if i can remember or how can i remember which is a little bit more um traditional right. and some subsidiary sort of comedic uh tunes which may be given i want to say to a harpsichord in various places williams right. likes adding harpsichord color as a uh, um well it was a very 60s thing to do <laughs> exactly it's kind of a, a light throwback with this kind of um quasi baroque styling yeah. that that's almost like poking poking fun at the i think the pretty rich um characters in this movie sort of taking them down a, a slight peg with this Right. Slightly silly um, harpsichord music. Right. Uh, you know, one thing I I know we could go over a few more cues, but, um, you know, a movie I've not seen in a very long time is the original version of this film, you know, which was right. 1954 with Humphrey Bogart. Bogart, yeah. Hepburn. And uh, and I'm I'm embarrassed to admit I don't even know who composed the score for the original. <laughs> yeah, I'd have to search my memory for that one too. I think it's someone actually fairly prominent, but yeah, as far as, far as I know, there's no cross references okay. or allusions to that in in the Williams right. score. I did note uh, there's an ostinato in the woodwinds in the cue called Linus's New Life, and I thought that this really reminds me of Home Alone. It's, it's kind of a da 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 da. It has a, it has a bit of a tension. I think it's a five note after double check. Yep. But... 
he makes use of some standards in there like the well uh, well some other songs like la vie and rose you know oh yeah that's there's a beautiful little uh uh small scale arrangement that i think starts out on an accordion or some some similar instrument and then gets right. uh you know and in the, in the second phrase really expanded and made more lush and there's also a wonderful sequence of four jazz standards that I have not been able, and I don't think anyone knows. I've I, I tried to find this out in the past. Um, if it, it was Williams who actually arranged mm, these pieces, yeah. like um, "Call Me Irresponsible" and uh, uh, "Shadow of Your Smile," yeah, yeah, like these these yeah. great uh, themes that w Williams you know, probably knows like the back of his hand, um, and they're orchestrated in a way that is not so dissimilar to some of those early jazz albums um mm -hmm. that he williams himself uh, uh arranged a lot of it kind of referring back to uh, a certain strain of sort of claude thornhill 1930s um lush yeah. and sort of soft edged jazz arranging sort of proto gill evans you know, almost that, that's what i hear in the sabrina soundtrack so i i wouldn't be surprised to know if williams actually you know had fun and arranged these four um, you know, really well-known tunes for this is it's uh, source music, right? It, it plays yes, during a party yes. in the movie. Uh, I I meant to say earlier, you know, for if you're a John Williams fan out there, um, you know, his full name is John Tanner Williams, and there is like the John Tanner sound mm -hmm. uh, that predates any of his film music. It's mm -hmm. I think it's from like the mid '50s, and mm -hmm. his piano playing is just like astounding. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he. Um... <laughs> Is a, was and to this day remains a very technically um, impressive piano player. Yeah. And one thing that that surprises me is that he has not yet written a piano concerto. There are rumors wow. that, that this is on his agenda to write a, a piano right. concerto for Emmanuel Axe. And it remains to be seen if that comes out, um, whether there is any kind of nod to his his roots as a as a session player, as a jazz pianist, as an arranger, as someone who, right. you know, can improvise with the best of them and uh, do some really novel things, which was the, you know, the, the norm in 1950s jazz was to to be rather experimental with rhythm, with harmony. And um, that that was his bread and butter for a while. <laughs> the John, okay, John I, Towner I, touch, I think. Is yeah, one of those exactly. Albums. All right. I, I can already tell it was a mistake to try to do three, three <laughs> scores. We're, we're going to we're going to have to make a part two, part three down yeah. the road and, you know, come back because uh, I love film music and I love talking about the nuts and bolts. But let's talk about one that's very different. And this was a revelation to me maybe two or three years ago when I heard it for the first mm -hmm. time. And that's Images, a Robert Altman film from 1972. And I finally two nights ago watched it i had to go to i think it was the tubi app you know and uh -huh. watch it with a few commercials in there but um it's with Susanna york and uh and it's with uh renee i forgot his last name but i actually know him as the audiobook narrator for some douglas right. preston and, was, and lincoln child books <laughs> he was in uh, star trek deep space nine i want to say yeah, yeah pretty uh, accomplished character actor um I, I, I'm not willing to say it's the most surreal film film I've seen because, mm -hmm. you know, like there's some others like Persona and some Ingmar Bergman films and mm -hmm. some other things out there. But it's certainly up there. It's it's uh, among the English language films. It's one mm -hmm. of the most surreal films. And and I'm still not sure if if anything I saw in the film really happened or if it's entirely in her head. Right. <laughs> well, <laughs> not not to give anything away, but, you know, it doesn't involve you know a lot of psychological mm -hmm. <clears throat> you know uh well, things going on but um i would say let's talk about some influences going into the score because i i think it helps to understand the style of like um ligeti mm -hmm. uh christoph pendereski and maybe even zanakis you know um what are some of the compositional styles that you get from yeah. their music well it's uh almost certainly Williams' most er experimental and avant-garde score. And Altman, my understanding was basically uh, gave him free reign. He said, you know, you do whatever you want, uh, given mm -hmm. our budget. Um, the the only thing I request is that don't do something that you've already tried before. Really, you know, push mm -hmm. your, push your um, creative boundaries, which is actually not something that Williams gets asked all that much. Um, right. I think to our detriment, because he he can be so strikingly original when the assignment calls for it. And I mean, he 
you can tell from his concert music around that time the the concerti and and uh, mm-hmm. instrumental pieces that he was writing essay for strings flute concerto um some of the the, the, the jazzy sort of uh, um, instrumental music that he wrote for the neophonic orchestra that he was very up on um mo- musical modernism in the right. 1940s 50s 60s for images i mean you mentioned a few ligeti penderecki i think um Verez would be a particularly strong uh, influence, the use of percussion. Um, And the sort of conceptual nature of a lot of the music in that score seems to be directly related to the admittedly small output of uh of Verez and um the the usage of sort of sound objects um there was a, a series of sculptures I think that uh, in, yes. inspired Williams um in right. conjunction with the Japanese musician Yamashita who uh performed a lot on the soundtrack um vocal and instrumental and percussion and right uh, uh, wind uh sometimes aleatoric which is you know not specifically written out but actually surprisingly most of it was very meticulously notated even the the stuff that sounds uh, totally spontaneous and you know Williams was using at the time all the most advanced notational um techniques uh, yeah chronometric and and aleatoric seeming um non non measured uh notation but it always still had to align with the the film in some way, so there was right a, a degree of specificity. But it does give like the players a little bit more freedom, so it's like approximately this pitch, for example, right. you know, and you can kind of, and and, and sometimes you get like rhythmic patterns that, that they can kind of do a certain number of times or number mm-hmm. of tempo within you know certain yeah. time frame. Uh, you know, I thought uh, if you were going to listen to a single cue that expresses like the the most diverse elements is the opening mm-hmm. scene and it's called in search of unicorns mm-hmm. um which is while there's a narrative passage and it's showing the house you get like this really nice almost typical williams you know mm-hmm. string strings kind of a pulsing bass uh, piano theme that does a lot of intervals of sixths and so forth and and parallel six and you know a few little yeah. un- unexpected tonal mo- motion but it gets interrupted jarringly so <laughs> right. by the you know by the percussion Japanese percussionist Tomo Yamashita. Yeah, yeah. So and and, the, and Williams, the, you know, he collaborated with the, the, yeah. this person and, and really you know allowed allowed Yamashita to to, to to determine the the kind of soundscape of this movie as much. Well, um, as I noticed was. what he did uh, on this. It was, it was very enlightening. A friend was able to loan me some some sketches that he had a had a copy of, mm-hmm. uh, and. Um, he he writes out the rhythm he wants in mm-hmm. the percussion, but he doesn't say what the instruments are. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. So I mean, at least that's what I can tell. Now I don't know. Those are sketches they might have gotten fleshed out, yeah. you know, before the film. But that's that's pretty neat. So it seems like Williams knew the effect he wanted, but he let mm-hmm. you know Yamashita choose the instruments. Right. And without that score, it's very hard to place actually some of those instruments. I mean, there's there's such right. unusual effects or. or uh, um, atypical techniques used on familiar instruments that it gives it extremely unearthly quality to the whole score, which is of course magnified by its its a uh, juxtaposition with the somewhat more conventional string and piano writing. Right. Yeah, and that, also... that does persist across the whole the whole soundtrack to that sort of um, yeah. clash of of styles. There's also some vocal grunts and sometimes even some spoken words and whispered mm-hmm. words. <laughs> Thank you. 
it's re it's kind of almost reminds me of um, not a film that wouldn't come out till five years later, but Suspiria with a go yeah, goblin yeah. score. <laughs> but but this is all completely acoustic, right? I think oh, yes. There, there's no um, synthesizers whatsoever in this right. score. Which is, I mean, that's generally true for Williams. Sometimes there will be some smaller scale uh, synth components, but. Uh, uh, certainly not in this one. It's all produced um, there on the stage. And right. uh, yeah, you know, it's a marvelous score. There's also some components on, that are on the soundtrack that didn't make it into the final cut of the movie. Um, yeah, the Blood Blood Moon didn't make Blood it, Moon. right? That's right, that's right. And Blood Moon, this is one of those quasi-Baroque um, styled pieces that, you know, with a little bit of a 20th century tw tw twist in play place as well, but, you know, densely contrapuntal with canonic writing and even a uh, kind of uh, polyphonic juxtaposition of, of two themes towards the end. Nothing, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, nothing strictly fugal, right? There are yeah. no actual fugues in, in that piece or in the score, um, which is something that Williams has done. You know, he, he likes yeah, the shark cage fugue. He likes to sneak <laughs> him in there when you when you don't expect it. But um, right. even so, the, the style here is still, you know, it's very, you know, sort of 18th century classical, but with a, a tiny jolt of Prokofiev here and there with the modulations or, or wrong notes. Um, okay. Very impressive comp compositionally. I'm glad that he got it on the soundtrack album. Um, if if it were, yeah, cut from the final movie, or maybe it was such something that he wrote that was inspired by it that he never um, envisioned being in the the film itself. Uh, th that was the case for actually quite a number of Williams soundtracks um, around this time. That like the soundtrack album would be kind of its own text, and Williams would arrange and have all these cues sort of presented in a different slightly different manner than they were in the actual movie that that's right. the case with jaws and uh et and some several others from that time period there's a there's a cue uh listen on the soundtrack called reflections so i was mm -hmm. i was brushing up on just the soundtrack this morning before we had our interview and i had the door open and my wife popped in when i was playing that i was like what are you listening <laughs> to <laughs> Oh yeah, you know this is the same guy who wrote the Superman march, right? You know, I know, but it's it's strings uh, that are not in tune at the highest, you know, the highest level they can play, and just changing effects, you know, just kind of like you get from like Penderecki and yeah. and some others, and uh, very aleatoric, very random. It's part of parts of it sound like Webern, but parts of it sound like the other composers we've mentioned, and. you know, all Williams. And <clears throat> um, what are some of the films that you think like this type of writing made it into later? Like I, I, I definitely would say Jaws mm -hmm. parts of the original, like the, I don't know so much about return of the Jedi, but definitely star Wars and the empire strikes back. I guess I should say mm -hmm. a new hope for those who insist <laughs> out there. Um, and then, um, oh gosh, I was trying to think, you know, like Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, I, mm -hmm. I, I, when, when the, uh, the, the evil spirits emerge the Ark and it, oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I don't know that there's ever been a score in his output that has been as consistently avant-garde as images before or since. Oh, but almost left out. Close Encounters of the Close third Encounters. Well, that, exactly. So, <laughs> yep. I mean that 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 has its own kind of trajectory from dissonance into you know, the abduction of Barry. I believe is the, the yeah. cue that really sticks well, that, out on that. That that's like you know uh, every trick of the trade learned from sonorism and Penderecki and Ligeti and all those pieces is is, is present.
Um, and Marvel, marvelously effective, of course. More recently, um, I mean, I don't know how recent this would be considered at this point, but like War of the Worlds from 2005 yeah. is a, a pretty thoroughly um, uh, dissonant and uh, aggressive score. Um, maybe more rhythmic in its um, aggression than timbral or in terms of pitch and that you, you could trace that perhaps back to Stravinsky in the Rite of Spring um, right and uh, you know more often though you'll just hear these little pockets or isolated moments of extreme modernistic writing and otherwise more stylistically diverse scores I mean that's true for all of the action adventure movies where there's scenes of stress or or, or horror that, that Williams will fall back on that this kind of um, you know, Eastern European, um, really path-breaking 20th century composers for for his uh, stylistic adventures. AI is another really oh, yeah. one that that I mean, the, the, another kind of library of of modernist techniques, plus an extremely sentimental and um, you know gorgeous kind of tonal lyricism. Both of those things are are juxtaposed. I'm not going to insult the Empire Strikes Back by trying to get a discussion in just a couple of minutes. So, you know, definitely, I think we'll have a Star Wars episode. We'll feature oh, yeah. that score. But I'm going to make a statement right now, and I uh, would love for you to tell me why you agree or why you disagree. And that <laughs> is, I think that the Empire Strikes Back, that specific score is not only John Williams' greatest, most complete score, but I think it's the greatest film score of all time. Um, you know, I, I'm supposed to be a little bit guarded, you know, as an academic, right. make big, bold, objective sounding. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think I, I probably agree. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I really do. It's it's almost irresistible. Um, you know, every time you study the score, you find something absolutely like just mind blowing. Um, I was talking with another uh, uh, film music analyst the other day, and they, they were discovering all kinds of like 12 tone rows and buried Easter wow. eggs of compositional <laughs> mastery in there, but the the quality of the 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 big three new themes in that one, Imperial March, Yoda and Han Solo and the Princess, um, and they the, overall, the yeah. <laughs> I mean it's it's just it, 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 it it's a magnificent score from start to finish. There are no dead spots, not a single one. There there is compositional interest and dramatic interest at every moment. There's a really amazingly controlled arc to the score. Um, where 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 themes you know are, are tentatively introduced and then are explored and then get this sort of blazing um, culmination right. at certain points, and yeah, and it just it ends with a a, a bang like <laughs> yeah the the, the the carbon freeze onwards is just wall to wall amazing scoring right. just like the, the the battle of Hoth is like from that point to the end of the asteroid fields like that's the single most impressive action oh, yeah. sequence scoring in all of Hollywood history. Yeah, so, no. Um, uh, you know, and I'm, you know, if we were, to, maybe we'll save this more for like Star Wars, but like, you know, he does some interesting techniques that make it sound familiar, but not quite like, you know, the, uh, the, the what's known as the rebel, rebel fanfare is often played in like, you know, some of the battle scenes from A New Hope. It's entirely harmonized with major triads. You know, it's one of the things I know, which, you know, you, that's not very common, you know, out there. You usually get a mix. And then like the arc theme uh, is all minor tries right. for the most part. You right. know? Yeah, no, he loves this, this sort of um, uh, planing or, or thick yeah. uh, parallel voice leading for, for harmonies, which... In the case of the the rebel fanfare, it gives it a very bright but slightly there's almost a sour qual sourness to it because uh, right. every interval is chromatic. You know, none of the the chords actually exist within the same key as each other. Um, sort of intensified major chromaticism is a very cool effect, 
And it's a very Star Wars effect, too, um, uh-huh. particularly when it's the brass that are doing it and the trumpets. It doesn't necessarily have to be the rebel fanfare. I mean, there are other moments where it's not you know thematic or motivic, but are still using major triads and chromatic relationships um, uh, for the, these uh, exciting, generally space battle type scenes. Well, this is a teaser for conversation down the road. Uh, there, there's so much you want to. I mean, just I think I think as I thought about it, yeah, Empire Strikes Back needs its own episode, but we can refer to other Star yeah. Wars from it. So, um, just a few kind of uh, I don't know rapid fire questions here, real quick. Uh, what do you predict for the? So we're recording this in late January. What do you predict for the Oscar for best original score? Do you think John Williams is going to get it again? Uh. <laughs> Well, he's certainly been nominated enough times. Um, yeah. But if you go with the statistics there, he, he's more likely to lose than he is to win. Yeah. Um, but, you or, know, there's a lot of politicking. And, yeah, and there's a lot of politicking. Not, and, and, and it has, I mean, generally yeah. speaking, it doesn't necessarily reflect the, the quality or importance of the score. Right. Um, in the case of The Fablemans, I mean, I think it's a wonderful score. Certainly, no one could have done it better. It's, you know, gorgeous right. themes and... And uh, you know, really subtle. That's that is a chamber score, if there ever were one. Right. Um, it's also quite slight. You know, there there isn't actually that much music there. Yeah. So I wouldn't be surprised if it goes to something a little bit more extroverted, and yeah. maybe trendy, like the Hurwitz score for Babylon. Um, mm-hmm. but, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I I <laughs> I generally try not to predict because when I have done that, it's usually been oh, surely they'll just give it to the Williams. So self evidently better and more. You know impressively crafted and compositionally uh like masterful than all the other things and then it invariably doesn't go go to williams so like i i give up i don't know well i'm gonna i'm gonna steer listeners to just a couple of places to check out more about you so you have a book and i confess i haven't read it but it's going to be on my list is hollywood harmony musical wonder and the sound of cinema it's by oxford music and you can find it on amazon mm-hmm. um and I see there's a Kindle edition, so I'll probably be <laughs> adding that to my library soon. And I'd like to steer listeners to uh, your website, franklayman.com. So it's F-R-A-N-K-L-E-H-M-A-N.com. Yeah, I mean, we ta- we started talking about Star Wars. So before or after our next talk, when we get into Empire Strikes Back, uh, you have on your list a complete catalog of musical themes from Star Wars, and this is just amazing work. I was just, uh, I, I think there's probably weeks worth of reading in and digesting, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and it, you know, I have to make a confession; it's about to get a whole lot bigger too. I have oh, a nice. big update in the works. I mean, it takes a very long time, surprisingly, a large amount of time to sometimes, right. uh, you know, make even the smallest changes to this thing, but. You have a yeah. number of peer-reviewed papers, just some really some fascinating reading that people can go click on. Uh, is there anything else that you'd like to share where people can find you or, or you know, follow what you're no, doing? I, I think that the website's probably the best bet, you know, and okay. uh, see where that leads you. <laughs> yeah, I know you 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 were on Twitter, but you know, like some many in 2022 uh, have said that they need a, at least a break from that. <laughs> I, I cut the cord. Yeah, and yeah. my my. Uh, uh, Stress level has gone so so far down since then. Right. Are you yeah, elsewhere still, on social media? I'm still on, I'm on Facebook, you know. So okay. just look look me up on Facebook, and okay, that's an easy way to connect with me. Um, I don't post okay. very like very uh, sophisticated things on that 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 page, but okay. So. Well, uh, we're gonna put a ribbon on this, um, Frank. I, I I almost wish we had two hours to talk, uh, but thank you so days, much for taking yeah. time and just a little introduction to John Williams and just wishing him a happy 91st birthday. And just thank you for the wealth of um, film scores that he's brought to generations of film goers. It's a a bottomless gift. Man just keeps on giving. It's, it's amazing. Well, thank you very much for having me on. Um, This was fun and we should definitely, you know, follow up because there is so much to talk about clearly. Excellent. Uh, Well, thank you. I should have mentioned this before we got started, but all of the music examples that we used in this episode are in the show notes, and they are time-stamped if you would like to go back and review them further. And I wish it wasn't true, but that is the end of episode number eight. That is all of the interview. But I can assure you there will be a part two, and I'm looking very forward to that. And, uh, and thank you so much. And just a reminder, what's your favorite John Williams score? It doesn't have to be any of the ones we mentioned. Um, 
or if you have a specific theme, I, I would love it if you would tell me with your own voice at speakpipe.com. It's S-P-E-A-K-P-I-P-E.com slash musician toolkit. And uh, by the way, we have a, uh, have a website in progress. It's through my main web- website. You want to go to davidlanemusic.com slash toolkit. And you can find the podcast feed, all of the episodes. You can also contact me through that if you don't want to leave a voice message. You just want to leave me a regular message. And, uh, and also, if, you, if there's any other feedback you'd like to leave on the show, and I would also remind you, please, uh, thank you for the ratings that we've received so far. If you enjoy the show, please give it a five-star rating and review. And if you enjoy this episode, please share it with, share it with somebody who would enjoy it. Um, either another musician or just a film music fan. Again, thank you for listening, and I will be back with you next Monday with Episode 9.